Let's pray. Um, Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're a God who cares for us, uh, that you're a God who's reconciled us with you. Thank you so much that you're a God who speaks so that we can find out about this reconciliation. And Father, we pray that today, as we come to your word, we would know peace with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, Have you ever been at war? I mean, not Vietnam, most of us weren't even born, or the... Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that's on the other side of the world. Uh, or Afghanistan or anything like that. Maybe, maybe not those kinds of war. But have you ever been at war personally? You know, at home with your parents, uh, with your brothers and sisters, with your next-door neighbours, or uh, with the tax department, or the bank, or, or that faculty office at university? Or the library, or, or possibly that little gang, you know, uh, high school girls are great, this year eight, year nine, you know, that little group that won't talk to the other group for about three weeks at a time. Have you ever been at war? Because when you're at war, the consequences can be pretty terrible, can't they? Uh, the consequences of enmity are horrific. You, you, you get loss of health. You get loss of sleep, loss of friends, loss of life. Uh, there's discomfort, there's anxiety. There's all sorts of things. And, and you know, what's worse, the past is unresolved. It keeps on being dragged up all the time. It gets thrown up by your enemies, by yourself. You know, you said this, or you did, you, you should have said, why did you say, and why didn't you say? All the past gets ranked over and over again. It, it's all unresolved. You try to justify what you did, and you try to justify it to yourself, and you feel guilty about it. And at the same time, you're sure that you're right. And the future is uncertain as well, isn't it? As long as the warfare continues, it's unsure as to what the outcome's going to be. And that's, that's horrible. It's going to be uncertain. As long as the warfare continues, you don't know what the future is going to be like. What's life going to be like when this is all over? If it's all going to be over. If I win the war, at what cost am I going to pay to win it? And when I do win it, what's going to be left? What the heck is going to be left? You read about it in the, in the, in the papers all the time, don't you? The fights between the families, and the only one who wins at the end is the lawyers. They've won nothing out of the whole process, the people. The future can be so uncertain. And the present is so bleak as well. It's so unpleasant. Uh, whenever the warfare is on, hatred and jealousy, ill will, that's all there. Bitterness, plotting, it's all in the air. It's all in the heart. Now this is true of the warfare between God and humanity. We don't love God, we don't want God. We don't rejoice in His presence, but rather resent His intrusion, His authority over us, and hate the very mention of Him. God continues to be angry because we all rejected Him. We said, rack off God, we want to live life our own way. We want nothing to do with you. And God continues to be angry with us because of our rebelliousness against him, because of our warfare, our warfare that we started. And so when we look at our past relationship with God, guilt, that's what dominates. And when we look at the future, it's hopelessness and meaninglessness. And we look at the present, the best way of coping with God in the present is sort of like some of what the philosophers used to do. Just treat it as trivia. It's better to have a drink and play a game of backgammon. That's what David Hume did. 
It's better to have trivia. War. It's a terrible thing. But have you ever seen the film footage of the celebrations at the end of the Second World War? Uh, for after, uh, after six long years, after six long hard years of struggle, uh, the British people had the biggest party that they've ever had. They all just went dancing in the streets. They, they climbed over the monuments. They danced and they sung with strangers. They hugged each other. I mean, they were English. <laughs> and they were dancing in the streets, hugging. Uh, I had Christian Anderson as one of our faculty leaders for a couple of years. You don't do that sort of thing. It's just an overflow of emotion that actually takes place. And that's because warfare had come to an end. This is the emotion of a Christian. The past has been resolved, and that's what's happened to us. And Romans 5 actually kicks off with this positive note of peace being established. Let's read it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. See, peace in the Hebrew frame of mind, uh, peace in that frame of mind, isn't just that war has ceased. Peace is when war has been won by us. Peace is victory. Peace is harmony. Peace is a positive thing. Some people use the word peace just to mean, hey, let's stop fighting, you know? And, And the best way of stopping fighting is that we don't talk with each other. You know, I live across in Wentworth and Merriweather, you just live here on main campus. And we'll never cross City Road, and we'll be at peace with each other. That's not the sort of peace that the Bible talks about. The sort of peace that that we're talking about here is we build a bridge across City Road, and we walk across it, and we we talk to each other. You know, engineers and art students can be friends. (laughs) Peace comes because we've been justified. We've been declared right. The judge whom we offended, that's God, has declared us to be right with him. Because the penalty has been paid. That's what Romans 1 to 4 has been all about. So that we can be at peace with God. Death, sin, is defeated. We're at peace. And therefore, you see, it flows from what's been said before. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that's what it's been talking about. We have peace with God. And this has come through Jesus. Because Jesus' death on the cross paid our penalty in full. Defeated sin, defeated evil. And having been justified, therefore we have peace. And so it's by faith in Jesus that we come to justification. And therefore peace with God. And into his grace and favour. Into that beautiful place of favour with God. Into his grace. We have access to God. Jesus has won for us and given us access to God's favour. And not only is there peace, there's reconciliation. Have you ever been to introduce to you know, somebody important? Some, some, somebody you know, who's important and famous? Uh, sort of like Andrew Cattell, you know? Uh, you know, big, scary sort of a guy. But, you know, and someone says to you, have you met so-and-so? And, and, and you get to be introduced to them, and you can be friends with him. Well, it's the same sort of thing here. Jesus has introduced us to God the Father. Not that Andrew is God the Father. But... <laughs> We, we were enemies. We who live in rebellion against God and who were in opposition to God, we ignored God and wanted Him out of our lives. We whom God was angry with and, and, and whom God wished to destroy. Jesus has introduced us to God's favour, to God's mercy. And the whole idea is caught up in, in verses 10 and 11, that beautiful little word, reconciliation. 
verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The whole idea of conciliation is bringing together the opposing parties. That's what Jesus has done. He's the one perfect mediator between God and humanity. He has reconciled us together. The enemies have been now made friends. He's the peacemaker in the establishment of peace between the opposing parties. And we receive reconciliation through Jesus. See, that's what the Christian gospel is about. Yeah, it's about morality, but it's not primarily about morality. It's about relationship. It's not about merits. We can never be good enough for God. You, you can't live up to God's standards. You've failed in the past, you, you'll fail in the present, and you'll keep on failing in the future. And you'll always feel guilty when God's standards are being read out to you because you never kept them, and you never can keep them. But Christianity is about relationship with a friend. A friend who used to be an enemy. Being in relationship with God, and Jesus enters in that situation and actually brings us into relationship. But it's something then, that this peace and reconciliation, that when we have, our past can be wiped away. There's no longer the finger pointing and saying, Hey, Michael, last year you said this. Or three years ago you did that. And Jesus Christ has paid the penalty. So I can say, yes, I did do that. Yes, I did say that. But my past is gone. It's been forgiven. It's been pardoned. Which means I can actually face up to it. I'm embarrassed about it, sure. Sure I'm embarrassed. But I can face it. And I don't have to pretend that it didn't happen. Or that I was somehow innocent. I can say, yes, I did the wrong thing, but it's been pardoned and paid for in full. The past can be forgiven. And most of you are members of the library. I was a member of the library. I borrowed a book, returned it. But then a month down the track, I got this letter saying, please return the book. And I said, hang on, I've returned it. And so I wrote a letter back and said, look, I've returned this book. And they wrote back and said, no, you haven't. Please return the book. So this went on for a little while and I just ignored it. Five years later when I was moving house, there it was, sitting on my bookshelf. The book that I had. And you know, the worst thing about when you left something for such a long time and, and you start justifying to yourself. You know, you think, hang on, five cents a year, five cents a day for five years, that's 90 bucks, and I can buy three of those books. I'm not going to return the book. But it's awful, isn't it? You know, because you know that you've done something wrong. And every time you walk past that library, you know that they're looking at you and they say, there's the boy who hasn't returned the book. <laughs> and after a lot of nagging, I finally returned the book. And you know, it's a great feeling. The feeling that you sort of said, hey, maybe I'll be part of the library again. <laughs> maybe I'll start, stop, start borrowing another book. I'm embarrassed about it, sure, but I can face it. The past has been wiped clean. And, and not only is it in the past, not only is the past cleaned up because we've sinned, but the future becomes certain. I know that I have peace with God now and will in the future be saved. That's what it says. And so I rejoice in verse 2 of chapter 5. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, back in chapter 3, verse 23, you remember, uh, 
we find that we've all fallen short of God's glory. And last week in chapter 4 verse 13, he promises to us that we'll inherit the world. We'll share with God and his kingdom. That's our hope. This is the expectation that we'll be in the image of God, being the rulers of the world. And so now that we have peace with God, we're looking forward to his glory. That's our great hope. And it says there, not even suffering in the present puts us off this, puts us off our hope. How you handle problems, how you handle sufferings, how you handle the hard times of this life is really the stuff of the present, is the stuff of living. It's your view of the future that determines how you react now. And well, if you think that you have no future, uh, if you think that, well, then the sufferings of the world, the sufferings that you go through, well, that, that's ultimate cruelty. You're suffering for nothing except, well, maybe entropy or something. And if you think the world is an uncertain future, and you're not sure that whether God is going to win, the good guy is going to win, or, or the devil's going to win, the bad guy is going to win, then you, when you suffer, well, when you suffer, you think that the bad guys might be winning, or the good guys might be losing, and, and you never know what the outcome is going to be. But when you know that the, the future is assured, when you know the future is certain, when you know that the future you're going to share with the glory of Christ forever, then suffering just becomes one step in the process of life. <coughs> you suffer, and through suffering you get perseverance, and from perseverance it produces character. And from character which gives you even greater hope that will not be disappointed, it says there. And that's what verses 3 to 5 is saying. That God is at work in all these sufferings to produce you the character that looks forward to the future when you inherit eternal life. When you'll be there with God in glory. Suffering's hard work, but you've got to see that there's good before you can last the suffering, before you can endure suffering. I mean, I, I volunteer for suffering, suffering fairly frequently, really. Not because I'm a masochist, but because I believe that my dentists will actually work good in the long run. If for the moment I think that he's not going to do good, well, I'm not going to go through suffering. I wouldn't go to him. But because I have a sure and certain hope of what he's going to do, I'm willing to let him do to, to me things that are unmentionable in polite company. I just got to hear the sound, don't you? It's terrifying. And you guys do it all the time. You're at university. Now, I'm sure that you don't enjoy exams. But to endure exams for something in the future, for the hope of getting that degree at the end. And so we rejoice even in our sufferings because we know the outcome. That's verses 3 and 5. Because we are certain that the hope will not disappoint us. Because of God's love in verse 5 it says there. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by His Spirit. The Spirit that's been given to us. And He shows us what God's love is all about. He teaches us God's love. As Christians we have the Holy Spirit that actually reminds us of God's love. And not only is the Spirit there to remind us. It's demonstrated. It's a fact of history in Jesus' death. It's been taught, brought about. That's God's love. It's been made clear. The same word is used back in chapter 3, verse 5. God's righteousness may be made clear, demonstrated, seen more clearly. And how do we see God's love clearly? Well, verses 6, 7 and 8 spell that out. You see, while we were powerless, while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ doesn't just die for the godly. 
He doesn't just die for people he doesn't know, who are his friends, something like that. He dies for the ungodly. He dies for sinners. He doesn't die for sinners when they've turned over a new leaf or something. He died for sinners when they are sinners. That's when he does it. For the weak and the ungodly. And I think verse 8 is one of the most incredible verses of the Bible. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. And I hope that when you get away from here, you actually try to learn it off by heart. It really is a wonderful verse. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's God's love about? It's just one of those things that, that so often rolls superficially off people's tongues. God's love is shown in this. While I hated him, while I rejected him, didn't want him, rebelled against him, and refused him, while I was thoroughly guilty, he sent his one and only son into the world to die on my behalf and for me. Leon Morris once said, he loves because of what he is, not because of what we are. He loves despite what we are. And God's love for us is so great. His love has got to do with his taking the initiative. And the character of God's love is costly. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not just some kind of a good wish or something like that. His, his love is paying a great price. And what a price. You know, Christians sing about God's love so often. And the adjective that's used all the time, or one of the adjectives that's used most often, is the word amazing. Amazing love. My debt he pays, my death he dies. Amazing love that I might live. Jesus dies a horrible death. The man was stripped and over a period of his dying he would probably urinate and defecate all over his legs. He was totally exposed until finally he would suffocate in his own fluids. We sanitise the cross. We, we polish it up in brass and wear it round our neck. We make it look so pretty. But it was dreadful. From my smitten heart with tears to one that I confess. The wonder of redeeming love and my unworthiness. A tremendous cost for us. Have you ever tried to forgive somebody who's done the wrong thing to you? It's quite hard, isn't it? You find it very hard when they've done the wrong thing. Harder still to forgive them before they've ever said sorry. Harder still to pay the damage that they've done even before they've said sorry. And that's what God did for us out of his own love for us. And so, the future is certain, because if God did the harder thing, he's certain, and he will certainly do the easier. If that's how God had treated me when I was an enemy, well, now that I'm his friend, I have no fear. No worry about the future. God will look after me. And that's the point of the argument in verses 9 and following. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from God's wrath, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. I've got a friend who, who got married and his father-in-law promised him a house in Kalara and a Victor lawnmower. Uh, it's a funny thing. But imagine if he got given uh, the Victor lawnmower first. You know, I'm going to give you these things and here's a lawnmower. There's not much certainty about the second thing coming, is there? But when the title deed comes, if he can do the bigger, you know that he's going to do the lesser. When he's done that which is so much harder, 
God says, I don't need to worry about the future. He'll be looked after by God and his son. The future is certain. Despite suffering, the future is certain. The future is certain because God's spirit's given given to me, so I know God's love. It's been poured in my heart. And God's love is certain because it's been demonstrated back in history when Jesus died on the cross. And no one can go back in time to take Jesus off the cross. And if God has done the harder, he can certainly do the easier. The future is assured. And so with this future assured, our present is transformed. The way I live in the here and now. Yeah, sure, Christianity is about a pie in the sky when you die. But it's such a magnificent pie in the sky when it dies. It changes the whole way that you're living now. It changes. It transforms your life. Just as existentialism, if that's your, your thought, if that's your worldview, which is about no pie in the sky when you die. And because there's no pie in the sky when you die, well, existentialism is in the here and now. It's, it's absolutely depressing. It's hopeless. It's meaningless. It's stupid. It's absurd. And the whole idea of life is, is just black dis- depression. And what existentialism says is because they say there's no God, there's no future, and because there's no future, there's no meaning. And because there's no meaning, there's no life. Well, that's the nature of it. And if you read any of the existentialists, it's all absurdity. It's all sadness and blackness. They write books about suicide, and sometimes that's their choice. But when you know what the future holds, when you know that your past has been forgiven, when the very character of life in the here and now has been transformed brilliantly, now is the time for peace with God. I'm not just only going to be at peace with God when I die I'm going to be at peace with God now and therefore when I die it's not just the future it's available now and so we rejoice we rejoice in the hope of our glory in verse 2 I once read a story about Sir Marcus Sloan who used to be the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney for many years and in his retirement he said that very often he was called to give eulogies at his friends funerals And whenever he went to the bedside of a friend, uh, whenever he had the opportunity to go to the deathbed of a friend, he always used to ask the question, do you know peace with God? And that's a great question, isn't it? Uh, Because that's a question that's generous. It's saying, uh, on your spiritual journey, do you have peace with God? It actually assumes that the other person is actually on a journey to God. And it's a great diagnostic question because if you think that the only way to God is working to him, then there can be no peace. And he went like that to a friend of his by the name of Howard Guinness, who was the founder of this evangelical union here at Sydney University. A great man of ministry. Our, our whole training scheme here is named after him, the Howard Guinness Project. And Howard Guinness was, was dying of throat cancer. And Marcus Lone edged towards the bed and, and, and said, Howard, do you have peace with God? Howard just shook his head. He said, no, not only peace, I have joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's a great word, isn't it? In the face of his death, what does he have? Joy. Joy unspeakable. Here is the Christian emotion, friends. Joy. It's not love. Love in the Bible has has an emotional element in it, but it's not really an emotion. It's not peace. Uh, Peace is a harmony, a getting on with one another, as we've talked about. It's not fundamentally an emotion. It's joy. 
That's an emotion. It's a purely emotional word. It means to boast, to brag, to, to, to exalt. Now, it's a sort of feeling of exhilaration when, when last Wednesday the New South Wales Blues beat Queensland. It's just great, isn't it? And you just want to say, in your face. No. <laughs> it's a like, you know, when you get, or when, you know, the mark that you expected and, and wanted the HSC. And you remember opening up that envelope? And you open it up and you see that you got the mark, in fact, a bit more than the mark that you actually wanted. And that just makes you, your smile beam. And people a mile away could see that, yeah, you've done it. Even though your mother seemed to open and had to look earlier. <laughs> That's a sense of, I've done it, I've achieved it. And I can boast and exult in it. Last Wednesday, when I was watching that football game, um, a few of my mates came over and, and we, we saw a few replays of some old grand finals uh, in rugby league. And uh, I was actually old enough to remember Malmeninga before he was a coach, when he actually used to play. And I saw a recap in an old grand final where Malmeninga, that great mountain of a man, um, he'd he just gone through 80 minutes or so of battering himself, uh, inside and out, and, and, and then the final whistle blows, and the camera just pans to his face. And, and the emotion, the emotion is such that he's almost breaking into tears. And he's really struggling to keep his tears back. You know, he's been bashed for about 80 minutes or so. That's all right. He's not going to cry because of that. But winning, when that final whistle blows, it just melts that kind of man mountain. It melts him, the whole emotion of it. And being from Canberra, he begins to cry. <laughs> See, this idea of joy, when we talk about bragging, when you brag about yourself, it's a bad thing, isn't it? But when you boast about your side, about righteousness, about others, about the victory that God, that is ours, now that I'm justified, I have peace with God. Peace with God, and therefore I can rejoice in the fact that I'll share in God's glory for eternity. And so we rejoice in our hope, because ours is not just one of uncertainty, we're not in deep despair and anxiety or something like that. We'll go through sufferings like the rest, but we'll go through them differently. That's why when Charles Wesley was asked, why is it that Methodism is growing so quickly? And he answered, because our people know how to die well. We've got the answer to death. We know how to die well, and, and that's a fruit of justification. We boast our hope, our joy are in the hope of the glory of God. For we rejoice even in our sufferings. When I was doing my HSC, I did do a book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by a guy called Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, he's a guy that when he got out of the, the Russian gulag, uh, the gulag archipelago, after years of suffering, he made a very interesting observation. He'd gone in as a political idealist, he came out as a Christian. And the reason he'd gone in one and come out the other uh, is that the political idealist, well, he didn't know how to face sufferings, but the Christian did. Uh, the political idealists, well, they were happy to go in, into prison for the sake of their political ideals. But their political ideals were not sufficient to cope with the torture, the irrational, wretched torture of the Russian gulag. But the Christians seemed to be able to cope with suffering. And so he found out about Christianity and became one inside that situation. Paul and Silas, a couple of thousand years before him, were sitting in jail at midnight, singing psalms. Christians are the people of song. Oh, it hurts. I'm not denying that. Suffering hurts. Right? We don't live in the fantasy world 
of thinking, well, it doesn't hurt. But we're not controlled by it. We're not depressed by it. We're not resigned by it. Because we have hope that lives through us. Because we know what comes at the end of it. We know the sovereign Lord who's working to bring all things to good for us in the end. And so we endure. You'll never get rid of Christianity by oppression and persecution. You will by affluence and apathy. But never by oppression and persecution. That's why the church is strong where places uh, where, where it's being persecuted and we can in places like Australia. My wife worked for Open Doors, Brother Andrew, for a little while and she was talking to uh, one of the leaders of the churches in China and he said, what's, uh, and she asked the question, what's the biggest threat to the Chinese church? And he answered, it's not the government. The government's actually quite kind to us and we can do all sorts of things. But the biggest threat is materialism. Not persecution, not threats, but materialism. And so the present is transformed because we know that we're loved by God. We know we are loved. How many people here can say that they're loved? Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That friendship word again. You got a friend? Hope you have. A real friend. If you haven't, come to talk to me later. So at least you and I can be friends. But when you've got a real friend, you notice what joy it brings to you? Have you noticed the sheer excitement? How it can actually light up your life? How actually seeing a sunrise can actually be more pleasant because you're seeing it with them? How seeing, you know, the, their car in traffic, you, you sort of see them in the distance and, and you just smile and you think, wow, is that them? Just because you know the other person? There's an old Sunday school song that went, the perfect friend is the one who knows the worst about you and loves you just the same. You can probably buy that on a plaque from Kurong or something. Um, but they've got it wrong. The plaque's got it wrong. It's not just the perfect friend is the one who knows the worst about you and loves you just the same. The song goes on. There's only one who loves like that. And Jesus is his wonderful, wonderful name. Who knows the worst about you? Which friend do you really have that you can really trust with your deepest, darkest thoughts and secrets? And trust that they will accept you and still love you? Jesus knows more about you than I know about myself. And his love is such that he paid the price in full for me. That he defeated sin, defeated evil. That he reigns now as the king. And I can be his friend. Reconciled with him. We have joy in God himself. And, and, and notice here the difference between enmity and peace. Yeah, in, in the old days, you see, we didn't give God another thought. In the old days, we rejected God. We resented God. We, we didn't want to hear about God. We didn't want to hear about the policeman who made life miserable. Or, or that great miserable school teacher who always told us what to do. Or something like that. But now that you know the forgiveness of God, now that you know that he's forgiven you through the death of his son, now that you know the love of God, it's great to know that he's around, isn't it? And so let me ask you, are you at peace with God like this? I mean, is your peace with God just a non-communication kind of peace? Just no interaction kind of peace, which really is no peace at all. Are you still at that enmity with God? 
where you really don't like it and you're sorry that you came to public meetings because someone's actually dragged you here and you still feel guilty and you ought to go but you don't want to go and Christians just irritate you because they just keep on talking about God. Are you still an enemy of God? If you've been justified, then you will be at peace with God. And if you're at peace with God, you have a hope in the future. And, and you'll know that the past has been dealt with. And you can be so overwhelmed by joy here in the present, in the midst of suffering. The joy and the hope that lies before us. The joy in suffering, the joy in God. If you're justified, declared right with God through faith, you have hope of God's glory. <coughs> Can suffering interrupt that? No, suffering will not interrupt that. How do I know that I will enter into God's glory, the hope of glory? Well, because of God's love. God's love that's been made known to us by the Spirit. God's love which has been made known and demonstrated, the, the objective demonstration by Jesus' death on the cross. How can I know that my hope will be fulfilled? Because God has done the greater thing. He will do the lesser. God gave his best for me when I was at my worst. The world keeps on wanting to say, God helps those who help themselves. Paul says in Romans, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Has God declared you right with him? Have you got that great joy in the hope of future? There's a story that uh, a bloke by the name Bryson Smith tells about a man out in Dubbo in his church who actually had a stroke, a cerebral vascular accident, and he's paralysed. He can't do anything for himself, can't even feed himself, can't dress himself. And every day, someone has to look after him, from his toileting to his dressing to his eating. And he was asked one day, do you want us to pray for you that you'll get better? And strangely enough, he said no. Why is that? Why don't you want to get better? No, no, see, I don't want to get better because I'm afraid that when I get back to my old life, I'll actually forget about the goodness of God and my great hope in the future. You see, it was because of this stroke that I actually come to understand who God is for me to put my trust in Him. And I'm afraid that when I lose this, when I go back to the old ways, I mightn't trust Him anymore. Now, sure, we, we probably won't go to that extreme. But is that your hope in the future? So great, so big, that you can live through and endure your sufferings. Friends, do you have peace with God? Do you have joy in God like this? And if you want to know more about it, amongst the comments that you make in your comment cards, why don't you write down what you really want? That if you want to find out more, write down your phone number and address, we'll get back to you, we'll talk to you. And if you're a person who knows the peace of God, most about the great joy in God as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're a God who's given us peace. Peace because you've declared us right with you, that we've been reconciled with you. Father, thank you so much that we can come into your presence, access into your very grace and favour. And Father, thank you so much because of all this, we can have great joy. And Father, let us not be a people who are miserable, who are always whinging but be a people of great joy. In Jesus' name, Amen.